and welcome back to Pierre Pressure Podcast. My name is Pierre. Thank you for listening. Today I'll be talking to musician, composer Paul Brill. But before I get into Paul Brill, let's talk about politics. We just had our midterm elections. It went really well for the Democrats. They were able to take back control of the House, which will enable them to start to put a check on the rampant corruption going on in our government with the Trump administration. So it's good news. Democrats won seven governorships, six legislative chambers, more than 300 state house and senate seats. Also good news, women did really well in this election. 100 won the house, 12 women to the senate, and nine women as governors. So it's really good for women to come back into power and try to fight against this rhetoric that's been poisoning our discussion lately. Trump's reaction to this election was first to, of course, deny that it was good for Democrats and to deny the reality that was in front of everyone. And then immediately after that, he fired Attorney General Jeff Sessions and appointed Matthew Whitaker, a former college football star and United States attorney in Iowa. Uh, Whitaker has publicly demanded limiting the scope of the Mueller investigation and has publicly supported Trump. So, so much for supporting an unbiased investigation. The thing about this is even if you believe Trump is somehow not guilty of any corruption or any collusion, someday someone who you may not support politically is going to do something wrong. And then they're going to have the blueprint for obstructing any investigation into their wrongdoing because Trump has laid this blueprint down for every president to come very dangerous. The other thing that happened is there was a mass shooting in Ventura, California. 12 people got killed by a gunman who then killed himself. And as usual, when something like this happens in America, a large part of the population cries out for more sensible gun control legislation to keep things like this from happening in the future. And another part of the population says guns are not the problem. The way I see it, we should try everything. One of the things we haven't fully tried is much tighter gun regulation. I'd like to use the analogy of cars. We're basically driving cars without seatbelts, without brakes, and without roofs. And we're saying, don't even think that this is gonna cause an accident. We don't even wanna know if this might be the cause of the accident. Don't even look at my car. The problem is the person driving, it's not the car. So that's basically what the argument is right now in America. And hopefully some of the people who've been elected to office will try to reverse this tide and enact some sensible gun control legislation. Let's hope that works. In any case, Democrats came out, voted 9% more than Republicans. So we know that Democrats have a majority in this country. They just need to use it. We just need to keep using it. But the way this country is set up, every state gets two senators regardless of its popular makeup. So we need to fix that because we do not have a democracy that represents the population and the popular vote. Keep voting, keep fighting, keep protesting. It works. We have a lot of work to do. So I really enjoyed talking to my friend Paul Brill. He's a musician, songwriter. He was in bands for years. He went on to build a career as a composer which he continues to do, and he's doing tons of great work. So I had fun hearing about his trajectory. 
and I got to pressure him into talking about politics, something he didn't even know I was going to do. But it was fun, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paul Brill. Hi, Paul. How's it going? All right. So I want to start by asking you what your first instrument, when you learned to play an instrument. I started playing as a child uh, piano, classical piano lessons when I was five, and complete rote kind of uninvested, non-practicing drudgery and like... So not Suzuki method? No, no we, there was a woman up the street that we went to, we went to lessons once a week and I, I don't think I ever practiced and I didn't have any connection to the music and... That Sounds like cr- it wasn't fun. It wasn't not fun, it just wasn't inspiring and I had, I just felt like something I did, it wasn't a connection and then... uh it kind of culminated the denouement. Oh, that's a good word. When we, there was a... Is that French? I think it is. And uh, there was a recital. And I, and I just, this is kind of how I was, or I probably still am <laughs> as a kid. I was kind of like, oh, there's a recital, whatever. We'll Maybe go. I should practice. No, I didn't even think that. And uh-huh. then until we were driving up and there were like 70 people there and uh-huh. cars everywhere. And I had an anxiety, like stomach ache. I think I bailed even which was a terrible lesson really? yeah i think i actually didn't p- perform because i i don't i don't think i prepared and my parents were kind of i don't know what their deal was but somehow they didn't check they didn't check <laughs> to if see what? if i was oh they weren't there they were there but they weren't checking to see if i had been practicing or ready to go oh, oh. it's not like today with today's parenting where they're like <laughs> you know they put their fingers on top of yours while you practice right, you know right. like are you breathing <laughs> right 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 <laughs> that so kind of thing. there wasn't like a lot of like star search pressure to be like the no, best at age i five. would say the opposite yeah i think they forgot i was even taking the lessons so that happened and at the very end of it i convinced the teacher and it was, i think she tried to she sensed that i was ending and so she tried to re- reach reel me in so we um, we learned another brick in the wall. Oh, nice! Yeah, which is not a really a piano song. It's like an E minor or something. <laughs> I have no idea. Over and we over. We got the sheet music, yeah. and it didn't really connect. But I was happy to be doing that. It's great. It was, I think the album was just coming out at that time. Not to date myself, and uh, so that ended, and then I early nineties. Yeah, <laughs> early nineties, right after Kurt Cobain died, um, and uh, then. At the same, right around the same time, in the middle of that, they in public school they introduce um, in fourth grade an instrument for instruction. So I said I wanted to play the flute, and the teachers told me that that was a girl's instrument. Oh, really? Yeah. So oh I had to God. play clarinet instead. Oh. So I took clarinet, and then bass clarinet, which is really hard, right? It's so in, much first harder of all, than the flute. A terrible instrument. What, the clarinet? I had a terrible oh, instrument, okay. like a renting, crappy thing. And it squeak like the, squ- the squeak <sighs> of that when you don't know how to play yeah. it is devastating. Yeah. It really, I think I still have nightmares about it. <laughs> and You're that, like and then I got a little bit better, but never applied myself. And then they gave me the, the bass clarinet to play when I got to middle school for the orchestra. Cause That's an awesome they, instrument. It was totally great. And Super I just hard. never dealt. I just didn't, and then I had the terrible, I made a terrible decision of stopping playing music because I didn't think it was cool because my town was so f- effed up. 
Which town was this? Is, this was Millwood, Westchester County. It's where yeah. I went to high school, middle school. Anyway, so then um, I was outside of music for a, couple, a few years, and then towards the end of high school, I had an epiphany that I was going to play guitar. And that's when things kind of lit up, and I kind of was doing something for the first time on my own accord that I was passionate about. And went off to college and just basically it ruined my college career. Right. <laughs> that's, that's all I did was play guitar and think about being in bands and making music and writing songs. And Do you remember the first song you tried to write? I most definitely do. My kids and I joke about it because it's oh, okay. so unbelievably bad. Oh, you, do you have – what is it? I, 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 I demur. <laughs> do you, can you even tell me a name? I could. It's so embarrassing. Oh, I mean, we all – everyone. Well, has. it's not like this is being recorded or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Just between you and me. All right. I mean, just for full disclosure and like lack of ego, it was called. I mean, I was. I have to tell you, I went to school in Vermont, and I was a very big hippie. Yeah. At the time, and after so coming out of a now? punk rock thing, yeah, the yeah. very beginning, like, yeah, I had no business writing songs. It was called "Fly with the Dove." <laughs> That's peaceful. It really was horrible, <laughs> terrible, terrible. That's not it's, so bad. It's, I'm so. It's horrifying to even say it out loud. My kids like they love it when I when I remind them. <laughs> Do they know how it goes and stuff? No, I, I, <laughs> I would. I don't even. I, I know it was four chords and it was like simple, but it was just terrible. That was but it. That was your. It was start. well intended. I was really kind of out of my mind at that period. But so you said you were a hippie. You're in Vermont, but you were also into punk rock. Like what was, I was what were yeah. you into that was making you want to write songs, like to emulate. <sighs> If you had an influence, you know, I was, I was kind of a classic rock guy early on, like The Doors and Zeppelin and all that stuff, and then got into the like the, I got very heavy into the Clash and the Ramones and that kind of punk, like kind of very pedestrian, not pedestrian but mainstream, like mm-hmm. stuff that reels you in pretty quickly, and then some other stuff that was you know, de rigueur of you know that whole situation, um, but. Then I started going to Grateful Dead shows, and mm-hmm. just that was just a big sea change. So Around was, the time of Flight of the Dove? No. Yeah. What was it called again? Yeah. Uh, Fly with the Dove. Fly with the Dove. Not, yeah. We don't need to repeat that throughout <laughs> this interview. I'll only repeat it like I would appreciate six or eight that. Times. So okay. um, I don't know. I was just, I was pretty hippied out and mm-hmm. started a new identity up in Vermont. So I was kind of feeling my way through that. And, um, that band Fish had just started kind of right. heard of them yeah they were <laughs> they just kind of getting going mm-hmm. in that town so we were pretty heavily influenced by them and they were very cool um, and you had a band going they on were kind of punk rock too believe it or not they did a lot of cur- like I oh guess, well they definitely just were always pushing boundaries they pushed a lot they, they played do. a lot of like they played you know um, what was it they played uh, I don't know Talking Head songs and Chili Pepper songs and right. stuff like that, but also just their approach to it was very—it was arty, throwaway at times, but very thoughtful, but like fun and like dark. It was very dark and almost scary at times, believe it or not. And we're and in college in Vermont, it was they were probably kind of like really around, like they were kind of a local yeah. band, right? At the they time. played this club called Nectars, which is just this tiny little bar. They would play three days a week. Like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday for free, and they'd play four-hour sets. Wow. It was really great, but also kind of a terrible influence at the same time because I was just starting to learn how to play guitar, and then all of a sudden there was this really cool, fully formed, actualized, thoughtful presentation, mm-hmm. and they 
they did it very well. So I was just kind of thrown into their situation and, and then went through that and then kind of came out the other side into like Jane's Addiction and early Nirvana when Bleach came out. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was a DJ on the radio station. Mm-hmm. So that led me to all, like we were listening to all that crazy, like No Means No and Alice Donut and just that mm-hmm. weird punky stuff that was happening at the end in the 80s, I guess. Yeah, the Late end of the 80s. 80s. Yeah. R.E.M. or whatever. Did you, um, like, turn your back on the piano? Like, did you ever pick that up again? I really didn't until much later. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I did turn, I didn't play again mm-hmm. until much later. When I started doing soundtrack stuff later, Right. Um, it was kind of a necessity. And then, you know, everything is done on the computer with a keyboard, you know, for writing right. now. So, and now I, I love playing. I probably play piano more than guitar. Mm. And it's, uh, I'm writing songs on piano now for the first time. So when you were, um, so you, how did it go from writing that first song to like, did you start a band or something? What was going on well, back then? Yeah, well, here's the trajectory. Okay. I mean, it, like I started playing guitar at the very end of high school or okay. towards the end. And it was really, I was like, I'm going to fucking get back at all these jerks in my school. That's a good motivator. <laughs> you know, I, and, 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 <laughs> Anger. and girls. And of course. You know, I was like, always girls. Because I never was, had success on in the, that area in high school so I was just there's gotta be this has gotta be helpful oh for sure <laughs> I was also obsessed with music to be yeah. I mean so it was a combination but I really just wanted to be able to play the song Black Dog oh I just said God, if I could just play that song that would be great yeah. and then I'd be playing guitar and I'd be like alright that's good enough so then I learned <laughs> Black Dog then I went to college I was like if I could just write a song and then I wrote that terrible song mm-hmm. and then it became if I could just be in a band. Mm-hmm. So then I started playing. I put little bands together, just doing cover songs. First, just jamming and like blues, like smoking weed or whatever. Oh, can I say that? Yeah, you can say whatever you, you're comfortable. I don't condone that. Putting out behavior. into the world. Wait, now my kids can't hear. Can we edit that? We can. If you're so, okay with it. <laughs> so where, as I was saying, um, I remember I... I I saw the power of like what the songs could do, especially in the girl situation. Oh, God, Not that I know. it didn't do that much Such for me. Such a motivator. Me, but I remember having some girls over that I had crushes on and playing them the song, probably Black Dog. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and they were they were duly impressed. Yes. So it's like this is some this is happening. There's something to this. So anyway, I started having bands, and then I got a band together, and we were. What was it called? Malayalam. 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 It's a palindrome that is an Indian language in Kerala. Oh, cool. And it literally means uh, the land between the mountains and the sea. Oh, that's pretty. Yeah, I learned it in anthropology classes. Yeah. It stuck with us for a while. In fact, my publishing entity is called Malayalam Music a million years later. Um, So we we were playing, and we actually started getting gigs, and uh, we opened for Fish. Oh, nice. A few times in in, like... Were you the singer guitar for that? I was, okay. yeah. I was a songwriter. Primary. My friend Michael and I were singing. He actually sang more, but we split it, but we were writing. I, I ended up writing most of it. Um, and But he, he wrote a lot of stuff, too, at that point. And we were doing a lot of covers. And, but what was good about that was we started. We just played and played and played and played. And then we started writing songs and being an original band. Mm-hmm. And then I went to... Um, I did a semester of college in uh, East Africa. Oh, wow. And... What country? I, uh, Kenya and Tanzania. Oh, wow. And I brought a guitar with me 
and just played and played and played and played and played mm. and wrote tons of songs and came back and started this band that got more serious. It was all originals then. What was that called? That was still called Molly Allen. Okay. But just oh, new, but new you came back from there. Yeah. We got a new drummer or something mm-hmm. and a new bass player and got serious and practiced all the time and just um, got into like these situations where you'd play a club and they'd expect, and especially in Vermont, you know, they'd expect you to play for an entire night. Wow. So you'd have to play. That's so and good just, for a band. So, and so it's good for best. your chops. And for your playing. And yeah. for your whole thing, which yeah. ended up, you know, if I had been in a band that was like a, a new wave band or, a, you know, punky band or something where you just learn your songs. Right. And you, you have your set. You play for 20, 35 minutes or And whatever. you just have your sound. Yeah, that's it. That's a great way to do it. But that didn't help me as a songwriting career person like as a band person but it ended up helping a lot later when I went into doing composing Mm -hmm. because I earlier on was doing commercial work and certain quirky scores and directors would just expect that you could play everything they would just play a mambo or play a classical piece or how about jazz or how about this fusion or and you just show up and figure and you it just out. Figure it out. And I've been exactly. playing. I've played everything in these stupid bands forever, from reggae Every kind to of music, punk right. to heavy metal to speed thrash. Uh-huh. To, and so it's a great like crash course. Yeah, yeah. It really was helpful. And commercials are very cool like that as well because you really get to cut your teeth and hone your chops and how quickly you can bang something exactly. together. Yeah. And how clean and how good you can make it and presentable. Right. So anyway, that's long-winded, but um, that's where I landed. And then after college, um, I, we, I got wanderlust and broke up the band and packed up my stuff and just got in a car and drove straight without stopping to Los Angeles. Really? <laughs> in February. To in move there? Yeah. Oh, I, wow. just, I couldn't be in Vermont another day in yeah. winter. And I just packed it up, landed, and I ca- I called my friends when I got there from high school that I knew were working in the film industry, and I just said, "Hey, can I just sleep in your on your couch for a month huh. or something?" That was in North Hollywood, and I pulled in Saturday night, and then we had a band there um, that with my guys from Vermont. Okay. And didn't really get going there. It was the end of the hair metal era, mm. and we were just not a Van Halen esque, you know, like shred. Shredding. We shredded actually. We just didn't have the confidence and the brash mentality uh-huh. you know we were still hippies a little bit and yeah. a little demure in our presentation and okay. more thoughtful about it and still not that great but um so we we ended up reuniting with my friend michael up in san francisco and moved up there and that's when things started to get good and we bought a van and just we were itching to tour so we just booked like 10 national tours on our own and wow. toured for three years without stopping basically all over the place and played hundreds of shows and um, really cut, cut our teeth and started picking up an audience a little bit and got a record deal a little bit. And what was, was the, was there a label behind you? Yeah, it was this point? Beach Records, I think it was, mm-hmm. oh, it was a punk rock thing. Like yeah. they, Their other band was Skanking Pickle. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> Is that San Francisco? Yeah. yeah. This Pickle. guy, I don't even remember. I think we ended up buying the record back because <laughs> we yeah. weren't doing anything. But then was we, that still Molly? No, that was called Envelope. Oh, right. And then we got some kind of attention from Sony Epic, and they gave us some development money to make a demo, and they ended up signing Ben Folds instead of us, and our band kind of fell apart after that. So moved what back a to, bitch. Yeah, you know. 
That it was happens. probably a good move Stuff on their behalf. <laughs> Everyone's got a story like that. They, that was good. We weren't meant for that, for whatever reasons. And then, uh, then moved back to New York and. Uh, why don't you play a live song for us? Oh yeah, I'll do a song. Cool. What song do you want to do? Um, this one is called uh, "Lay Down Your Weary Head." All right, cool. Let's hear it. Paul Brill's gonna play "Lay Down Your Weary Head." Do 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 do. I told you you keep your mouth shut when you don't understand it's better to be quiet than misunderstood thought to be stupid or lying you must keep your hands still or they'll think you're restless all bitten by the devil and this time I hear they're serious So please keep your head down and drive If you lie sleeping on the ground They might not see you or think that you're gone So lay down on and this is what they told me they're killing gypsies now so keep your mind quiet and don't let them hear you speak you can lie down here with me until they light a fire and burn all the weed and i don't want you to lay down on the ground Lay down Lay down On the ground Lay down On the ground Lay down On the ground, they might not see you or think that you're gone. So lay down on the ground. Wow, that was really great. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> 
I feel like I'm in a time warp. <laughs> it's, I know, as it's, if, crazy. it's as if no time had passed. <laughs> well, that's what music does sometimes. I know. It just it's lost in the moment. You. Yeah, so I want to hear about yeah. Lay Down Your Weary Head. Well, that's one of my favorite songs um, to play um, live. I, I wrote it a while ago, and um, it's on my record, New Pagan Love Song, which was a really breakthrough record for me after doing a bunch of other records. Um, I got Pro Tools and my own mic equipment for the first time and started just recording um, on my own, not really sure what was going to happen with it, just thinking maybe it would be a uh, <clears throat> like a, a demo or something, and it just rolled and rolled and rolled. And it came out really well, and my friend Nancy helped me with it, and she mixed it. And um, my our friend Mike McKnight was feeding me a lot of like glitch music at the time. What's uh, glitch music? Electronic? Like laptop, yeah. like quirky cut and clicky uh -huh. weird it's it's it, it is cool. what it sounds like I yeah. Guess. yeah yeah it's fun like early like ma mouse like, on mars or that kind of stuff yeah a little yeah. bit yeah. definitely um i can't even think about who was doing it at the yeah. time it's it was kind of came and went but it's still part of the deal yeah the lexicon so anyway that was really that was a breakthrough thing for me just artistically and um technically just to figure out how to record myself and how to use the computer as a palette, as a, you know, as an artistic device. And that led to um, other recordings and later being able to compose and But I want to hear stuff. about the song itself. Like yeah, what, right, yeah, the song. So that was, it. it's kind of a bit of a, I don't know, I, sometimes when I write, I like to kind of capture just this, tell a little story, a snippet, like a little, you know, as a songwriter, instead of being literal and mm -hmm. um, d direct about my own experience, I'm not that type of songwriter so much, mm -hmm. or I used to definitely not be. I was a little bit more oblique. Mm -hmm. But this one came out, and I don't know where it came from. It's, it kind of tells a story of, in my mind, it's, it feels like there are these people that are hiding from, like, the bad, the, the evil forces whether they be in Europe or modern day America that are coming for you and you're hiding, they're hiding in the weeds and the bad um, people are coming yeah, for you and you're and hiding. It's like gypsy. It's basically like a gypsy is being hidden mm -hmm. by the protagonist and saying, keep your head down. Like, you know? a, is it like a Holocaust thing? Yeah. It's a yeah. little bit like that, but mm -hmm. it's not the Holocaust. It's, it's more modern day imagining of it. Yeah. Or just, it's some, different tangent you know a different parallel mm -hmm. universe there's just some experience that's trying to be universal just what that might have felt like to have been hidden and and being other and being under and under persecution yeah so i once i was i mentioned before off mic that i was once invited to play at a um at a i don't remember what exactly it was a palestinian america like American Jewish like positivity benefit in New York. Yeah, like mm -hmm. Tony Kushner was there, I remember, mm -hmm. and there were a bunch of great artists. And I was invited to um, Tony's the good perform. Kushner, right? Who's Jared's he? brother? Are they related? I think so. Is he like a venture capitalist guy? Tony? Yeah. No, he wrote Angels in America. Maybe I'm thinking someone. Unless else. I've, I've got a terrible memory. I don't so know. I hope I got the name right. Anyway. Anyway, I think that's who it is. Anyway, um, I uh, I did that song and. I can be clumsy with words sometimes when I'm performing. I'm not the greatest um, presenter of the in-between stuff. 
So I remember I said something like, this song is about oppression in general. And I was amongst like really hardcore uh, activists Mm -hmm. (laughs) who are very particular in their thoughts and which I understand. And this is a very loaded subject to begin with. Yeah. So um, after I performed this Palestinian woman who is a comedian um, who who happened to have cerebral palsy, not that that really has any bearing on this. Mm Mm-hmm. She came up and ridiculed me. Wow. <laughs> like, it was devastating. What was her... I was really sensitive just about being there and, like, yeah. I'm Jewish and, you, you know... You put yourself out there. I didn't want to, like... Yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm all for huma- huma- humanitarian treatment of everyone and I have my own views on that whole situation. Mm-hmm. But um, I felt like I was just trying to do the best I could. <laughs> so she came and said, what about that Paul Brill? Oppression in general? Let me tell you about oppression in general. And I was sitting there just, like, dying. She just used you as, like, a yeah. and target, like You have to be thick-skinned. Like, I don't think she hated me, right. but it felt pretty damn personal. I, it's obviously stayed with me. Yeah. It's been a long time. Um, so I've tried not to say that on that song that often. But, I mean, this is this is this brings me to my question, which is, you know, when do you put politics into a song and how do you take a stand about something? And is it worthwhile to do that? In your opinion, I'm totally in favor of people doing that. I've never have done it. Mm-hmm. I'm not comfortable. I don't feel comfortable even putting myself in the song. I don't feel comfortable being direct, and I'm a little bit more elliptical about mm-hmm. my presentation. That's just my approach to mm-hmm. songwriting. I don't feel at home inside the song. Right. And I definitely feel like I, I've never felt comfortable like writing love songs, I don't right. know, or about a particular person. Even like like I was saying in that song, I don't want to talk about a particular event that happened, and I'm definitely not. And I have no problem with other people doing it. And I listen to music. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up on Dylan and right. and I mean, uh, and that whole movement, and even modern stuff. And is there anyone modern you would say like maybe steps out in front of the and takes a stand on stuff? I mean, I'm not a giant Bruce Springsteen fan, but he definitely puts sure. his neck on the line. Yes, yeah, he does. You know, mm-hmm. I admire him a lot for that. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Billy Braggs and that style, it's definitely comes from the folk tradition. Right. Um, I think probably the clash did it a little bit, but not as directly. Um, and I'm, I can't think of, I mean, you two definitely put their money where their mouth was and I'm totally down with that. I just, I've never felt, I'm a little bit shy just in my presentation as an artist. So I don't know. I like to keep my stuff on the deal a little, a little bit. Well, also maybe a little open so it's up to people's interpretation. But That too. But in that sense, in that case, you felt something really <laughs> like strong about, you know, what what is it like <clears throat> to be tracked down for your, because of whatever group you belong to. And so something about that resonated for you and you felt the need to write a song about it. It's true. Or it just came out. And I think why I like playing that song mm-hmm. is because it does have a real meaning and mm-hmm. I can really get into it emotionally when I perform it. And my, um, backup singer partner um, Jamie Lenhart sings that a big part of that song mm-hmm. solo um, in the middle of the of the of the performance. And it's really beautiful. It's one of the more moving pieces. Um, and I think because of that life, it took on that story, which is rare for me that it became this thing. It occupied this space that I don't usually. Right. It occupy. took on more meaning. Meaning. It than did, and then I with. actually used the instrumental version of that song 
in one of my first films I mm-hmm. scored was called Full Battle Rattle, which was by Tony Gerber and Jesse Moss, which is a really cool film and was a real turning point for me writing wise. And they let me stretch a lot, but we had some spots that needed something I hadn't come up with. And so I grabbed the instrumental version of that and the, the fantastic violin player, Jenny Scheinman mm-hmm. performed on that song on the recording. And we used that and it's, it was really effective. And so when you do it now, do you have, does something resonate in a different way because of what's going on in our world these days? Is that something that goes into your... Definitely. I can definitely vibe on that. And it's always been really powerful when I do it with Jamie because if you hear her sing it, it's much different than the record version, the way our band does it. And Mm -hmm. Matt Ray, my piano player, plays beautifully on it. And uh, there's just something special that happens when she sings that is arresting for me. Yeah, I mean, obviously you're not putting it you're not putting it out there in, you know, black and white, but it's like there are definitely policies happening now in our country that are tending towards singling out certain groups of people in really unfair and terrifying ways. I it's almost heartbreaking that this song I never would have imagined that this song this song feels ancient to me and like mm-hmm. old. It mm-hmm. feels like a place that like you know, the Holocaust is a, a close reminder of other genocides in the past um, that aren't as current. And although, of course, these things are happening, you know, all over the world, mm-hmm. particularly like in Sudan or wherever. Um, Bur- Rohingya, Burma. So, yeah, is that Burma? Yeah, and uh, but to have what's happening here and have this song kind of speak to that in my mind is just dumbfounding it's heartbreaking it's, you I like mean, wish it wouldn't and, have to I be i mean there. i don't i don't want to get too political i guess i don't know if you want to but i just i want you to <laughs> i mean i just when you see whatever your political persuasion is if you see children right put in into actual cages and separated from the parents it's beyond words and i'm yeah. struggling with this a lot i was very hopeful to when it first was happening when because you know it's in New York a lot of it and we are all hearing these stories I was hoping to maybe foster some right. kids yeah and we were about to do that and my father passed away right at the same time and kind of took the legs out from under me mm. and now I don't even know if there's an avenue to reach these children wow but it's uh it's I'm feeling guilty as a human being just living in this society now and not like lighting myself on fire, you know. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, I know what it's, you mean. Because I'm watching this happen. Yeah, we're watching this together, and we have these feelings, and it's emasculating. It's it's dehumanizing as for us to watch and be and be part of uh, of this system, this society, and benefiting from it in a lot of ways. Right. And watching something that is unbelievable it's just not you can't stand like it for it to happen for one more second and then and yet it's happening every day and i i think like one way to put what you're saying is like capitalism like okay we're all living in it it's been very good to some better to some than others and we're you know we exist in it we it's the pool we swim in but is it working you know for everyone well clearly (laughs) clearly not not. i mean the divide is growing there's 
we haven't figured that out yet. We haven't figured that out. I can stomach that a little bit more. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done with class and and social justice, obviously, and inequity. But the immediate horror and evil of what's going on, and not even to get into the environmental right and what's happening with targeting the other people from other countries and other religions that's horrible as well but to take when you when you bring hellfire onto children that's a special place in hell yeah you know a special evil that if you believe in god then you're going to be facing some stuff at some point right. i mean i don't cuz they're 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 obviously trying to use this as the ultimate deterrent they're saying let's let's uh make it let's terrify so people. horrifying yeah. to come here illegally or without documentation that you'll never try you'll it. never even set foot in it right but i also lately i've been trying to like get into the mindset of some of the decision making that goes on in like the administration that i, I don't even want to say the word of <laughs> the guy who's he, our president they who <laughs> must not be named exactly but um and i think that it all just comes from fear and it's it's a really human thing to just tribalize everyone and to put I feel like everyone really wants the same things, basically. All human beings kind of want the yeah. same things, except for maybe he who cannot be named because he's from well, another planet. It's, it's so effective. It's so effective. To, to just to go into the base fear element, you know? Yeah. It's just, it works. You know, you, you hit people who maybe aren't, I mean, not, this is going to sound generalized and elitist or something, but people who aren't necessarily informed or connected to the other experience or if you if you have a worldview, if you haven't been outside of your own little world of that's safe in mm-hmm. your little pocket, and you have if you haven't traveled, if you haven't worked with people that are different, of lesser means, you know, if you haven't been exposed to other people, then it's very easy to be targeted in that way and say these people are bad. I mean, it's what we've done. It's human nature. It's, it's been human done nature. For we've been millennia running away from our enemies. You know, in real. In a real sense, for thousands of years. Point and, the finger; they're the ones. But so I think what's so crazy right now is that, like, I can point at like a desire as a parent. I want my kids to be safe. So I want my kids to be safe. I want my kids to like go to school and not be ever be afraid that they're going to you know get shot at school. Well, <coughs> if I look at my neighbors who are you know right wingers, they have the exact same desire, but for them, the solution is more guns and keeping mm-hmm. Muslims out of America. And they have the same desire. They're like, I want my kids to be safe. So that's why we're so, it's so crazy right now because yeah. people want the exact same thing. And that's then true. they try to affect the exact opposite policy to get there. And they, they feel that we're all idiots. Right. The same way the left feels well, anyway, without name calling, you know, there's, there's a lack of trust and a lack of, um, vision and acceptance. I do feel, I don't know, in my personal life, I'm trying to be open to yeah. people on the other, and I would love to have a, a discourse, and I try to understand their viewpoint. I understand the fear that people feel, mm-hmm. and I understand how they're manipulated. Right. Uh, and I, they would say we're manipulated, you know, yeah, but that's where but I there's sort of... a more thorough investigation and in, in connection to facts and science and right. open mindedness and discussion and and thought and 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 education you know there's there if you're trying to shut down 
discussion and thought. Right. Then, yeah, that's just not. And if you're if you're using if you're clearly using misinformation, right, as is cl- done and fear tactics. I mean, when you hear the attack ads and you hear attack slogans and it's uh, you know, we I just finished a film called Reversing Row, of Netflix film, uh, that came out before the whole Kavanaugh thing or was right, made before it came out like the week or something wow. that I was going down it was pretty crazy yeah and who directed that uh, Ricky Stern and Annie Sundberg okay who people I've worked with forever mm-hmm. and uh, who actually gave me my entree into film I want to go back to that because yeah. that's something we haven't covered so yet. it was just how, how effective the right has been in that debate and they're winning right and they are more tenacious right and they'll there's no holds barred they'll do anything the the right is really good at obtaining people. and consolidating power they're, and yeah. and the left just doesn't do that because it's not really part of the agenda for i feel it well, never just, has been well look look just what happened this weekend i hate i'm just kind of <laughs> being political <laughs> like this you do on a, okay on a recording it just feels weird but okay either way just and, and and so immediate and well, here's of the thing. this moment. I want to say, like, this is know? going to come out in a few weeks. So yeah. we're right before the midterm. So right. by the time this comes out, the midterms will have... Will I, have... Might, I might be living on an island okay. <laughs> before this comes okay. out. But right. just, I just, I was reflecting on Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. who's been a pretty, you know, celebrated voice of the left mm-hmm. now for a little while. And she came out with her DNA test right. results and claimed her Cherokee heritage right. and the left excoriated her like they did the uh, left did yeah well I know the Native Americans groups did there was a lot and I'm not even going to debate right the, the merits of what she did or but that's the thing that that puts that the, would that never happen on the right on the head because that would like never happen. the right would just they never eat their own no they don't they, eat their they own they rallied around Roy Moore exactly. the most despicable yeah. lizard yeah. of a human being of all time a, a Predator. I mean, everyone who's rallying around Trump are people that yes. he shit on during the I mean, he's during going, the he's, primaries. He's in Texas today with, with Cruz. Speaking of lizards, with Ted Cruz, yeah. who, <laughs> who whose father he accused of assassinating. Yeah. I mean, it's just you can't make this stuff up, right? And there's no memory, and there's they they don't ever turn on each other. No, they don't. Whereas we have a whiff of anything that it seems a little bit off, and we're just like. We, 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 yeah. You know, we throw we flush our people own down people the toilet. under the bus. Yep. And maybe she did. I don't. I'm not up on that enough. I'm just saying it's indicative. She made like kind of an, a silly mistake, mm-hmm. which she could easily just apologize for or right. whatever and move on. I don't. It we wasn't. It wasn't ill intended. Not at all. She's not like polluting. <laughs> she, no. Her policies are sound. She believes in human rights. She believes in and the environment. I think she said it out of pride. Like, okay, this is a cool thing to be associated. And she with. fell for. Trump's trap a little bit, sure, whatever. But yeah, so she's not a cagey, like guileful, you know, politician who who has it all figured out, like right. like some animal, you know. Right. Anyway, enough of that. Oh God, it's so fucking yeah. annoying. Oh. Peer pressure podcast is brought to you by a man riding a spider. Anyway, um, so I want to hear how you got into soundtracks. We're, so now we were back in, um, I don't know if you were already doing your own solo stuff, but you were doing bands in San Francisco, and it was getting some momentum and stuff, right? Yep. 
So we were doing that? that band and touring and touring and touring and touring, and then it just became envelope. about the envelope. The envelope. Yeah, and then uh, um, we got closer and closer to that brass ring. You know, which is that you know elusive, the record deal. Yeah, I know where you don't have to work. People and you're, don't realize it now. It's a much different environment. And it landscape. was a thing. You had a specific a goal back it was then a hope. as a musician. Well, because now you can't make a living as a performing or, or like songwriter. Or, right. Well, you can, but it's a band. Really, really it's hard. Impossible. It's almost impossible. Well, because they took away the radio revenue and right. the record sales. Right. So there's nothing those, left. Those, there's oh, there's perform- t-shirts there's and performance. performance. Yeah. But we didn't have an audience like that. Right. And so at the time, getting a record deal was a legitimate way you could support yourself sure. and get to the next level and develop your sound and your artistry. Right. So we were we had management and blah blah. blah. We got offered a deal that we screwed up. We're too punk rock. We we're like, we're not going to sign that. <laughs> you know, so stupid. Oh yeah. And then got that development deal and didn't get that deal. And every show we were doing was a showcase for some major label. And we just we lost track of. Who, what the initial intent was, you know, which was to just discover new music and have more fun with it, and became this really ambitious, yeah, an engine, yeah. an engine of like commerce or trying to make commerce, which is, I guess, natural. I mean, it is natural because you have to live. Yeah, right? we were, yeah. we wanted, we had goals. We weren't that ambitious either. We just weren't made for it. We weren't like we were gonna get famous no matter what. We were kind of like let's just play and enjoy it, and then. It wasn't meant for well, that. Well, I mean, asking asking artists and musicians to become business people—that's what—that's what's asked of you if you're gonna go that next step, or at least back when there was a music industry, right? And it's it's an impossible thing to yeah. put on, you know, for most artists. And our band was somewhat—we um, had a little bit of acumen in mm-hmm. that area, just because we all went to college and were kind of thoughtful people, sure. I think, but not super sophisticated or. You know, um, didn't have a lot of. You have to be calculating too. Savvy in that area. Yeah. yeah, we weren't calculating. We made a ton of mistakes, but it was fun. I wouldn't take it back for a second. I mean, we had this was the greatest time touring and meeting people and playing great gigs. But that came to an end, and I met my now wife around that same time, and she, uh, we actually had a little band together for fun. Oh, really? And, yeah. Oh, no way. Yep, with her brother who was living with us, and we had this little fun kind of folky band that was great what was that called uh, peanut butter peanut butter <laughs> do you have any peanut butter recordings I do actually oh, we, nice it was good we had um, this woman Tanya Hayden from the Hayden triplets oh I know Charlie guys. Hayden's daughter yeah yeah I know and, Petra yep yeah and she played with us Tanya plays violin or something cello cello yeah she was less um, like the other two were in a, yeah. were in a serious band that dog yeah yeah I remember that mm-hmm. we played with no, them those guys yeah they were great I really mm-hmm. like that band a lot mm-hmm. anyway um, so that happened and then Alicia my wife um, got into grad school came back to New York and I was really feeling the itch to move back to New York anyway because just every time we came through here I was like this is my people I needed to be mm-hmm. here so we came back and then I had another dynamic huge tectonic shift happened where I thought I was kind of honestly just kind of out of music I wasn't sure what was going to happen and within two weeks of being back in New York I got a job working at a school in East Harlem that completely upended everything and kind of 
brought me down to my foundation and I, I had a mentor there named Ivan Higeman who was one of the founders of the school with his brother who like schooled me in act, in real terms about race and social justice and education and uh, wow. and just the inequities that exist in this society mm -hmm. and 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 so many other ways it was really college for me in a lot of ways yeah. like grad school <laughs> yeah. I learned how to write there I what was, were you doing? I you was were a, a development director and learned development and also learned about education yeah. and public education this is an independent school but I learned everything and on top of it about race and privilege and it's a groundbreaking program that's changing people's lives in a huge way and there it's I I would encourage anyone to look it up. Do you continue to work with them in some capacity? I mean, I, I support them as much as I can, right. but I, after my kids were born, it became difficult. Mm. I really didn't have that much business being there in the beginning. Uh, I was It was a, kind of a miracle. It was very serendipitous that I fell there. The right, it was cracking the, the, the universe or something that mm. allowed me to have that because I didn't have any training in it. I learned on the job, and they gave me a chance to grow in every possible way, and it changed my life you know and led to a lot of other things but at the end of that experience I was there for six years um, I kind of started creeping back into the music hmm. and was writing songs and um, had a little band together that I called Milkweed oh. that was kind of old timey we were doing like Bob Wills and Kitty Wells and Hank Williams and Lubin Brothers mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff and then my pop like songwriting kind of creeped in and this kind of middle ground came together and started making new records and that all kind of happened when I left school to go into music again and then something else that happened that was really uh, game changing was my good friend Nancy Hess she was a dear dear friend of mine and uh, we had been friends back in San Francisco, and she moved to Portland and had met up with uh, my good friend, this guy named Dave Camp, who was one of the most talented musicians uh, and just players and thoughtful human beings that you'd ever meet. He actually just passed away a couple years ago. Um, Sorry. Yeah, it was crazy. Stomach cancer. It's a pretty special person. But those two became partners. They called me. And around the time I was leaving the school, and they said, you know, we're composers now. We have a studio. We're living in Portland. We, we're working for Nike, and we're, uh, <laughs> we're recording commercials. And we made, like, we made all this money last year. Hmm. And I was just so clueless about that yeah. possibility. I, I said, well, what are you talking about? That sounds amazing. Yeah. Sign me up for that. Yeah. You know, and that kind of lit a little candle in my back of my head. And then right around the same time New Pagan Love song came out, I got my first commercial for Publix Supermarkets, which ended up being one of my songs. How did you do that? Were you just thinking, oh, those, my friends can do it, so let me try to I, get in there. I was thinking that. Yeah. But what happened was I just, I guess I was putting feelers out into the world, and I had a friend named Nathan who ran a company, runs a company called Beta Petrol, mm -hmm. who I, I actually that. met through Michael. Yeah. And um, he gave me a chance, and hooked me up with this incredibly lucrative commercial that paid for everything I ever done musically. Great. Like, and then 
And then I got my first film at the, right around the same time as that as well with those people, Ricky and Annie, who I mentioned earlier. And so that was that was really the big game changer. Mm-hmm. So what happened was um, it was they did this HBO film called The Trials of Daryl Hunt, and mm-hmm. which is a fantastic life affirming, just blood boiling documentary mm-hmm. about this guy named Daryl Hunt who is from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, who was imprisoned wrongly for a rape murder, um, for ended up being almost 20 years, hmm. falsely accused. Um, and they made the film over the course of 13 years. Of wow. This. And they let me do the score, even though I really didn't know what I was doing. I had done some little bit of scoring, but not much. Um, but this was a proper score, and it was mm-hmm. a legit forum, and went to Sundance, hmm. And uh, I just kind of went for it, yeah, and tried it out. And we had this one meeting about a month into the process. They kind of gave me some footage and said, "Just run with it and just come up with some stuff, and we'll meet back in a month and listen." And I remember sitting down and playing it for them. It was incredibly nerve wracking, and realizing, in front of them. Yeah, yeah, and realizing this could be a road diverging here. Like, right, it, it could be the end the or something that could yeah. lead to something. And they liked what I was doing, and, get, and I kept going. Great. And then, so the film went out, and it was championed by Sheila Nevins, who was the head of HBO Documentaries, and she really loved it. And she came with us to Sundance, and they put put me up in the Marriott with a jacuzzi, <laughs> limos, and all this <laughs> craziness. And it won like all the festivals. Oh, nice! And I ended up getting an Emmy nomination for my wow. for that film, which is my first film. We'll talk about beginner's luck. Yeah. And uh, completely changed everything, mm. and that opened a lot of doors. Just because I'd done it, you know, I'd done something. I, it was kind of right. like being Taft Hartley, you know, in, as an actor, where you're like, right, right, you, you get can't get into credentials, SAG right, unless you have a role, but you can't have a role unless you have exactly. SAG. You just got to get your foot in the door, right? So I kind of had that happen, and then I hustled my ass off because I had a young child at that point, yeah, super hungry from being in the songwriting and band business for so long. Pierre Pressure Podcast, brought to you by people who came of age in the 90s. So what what happened was I got that film, and, you know, documentary filmmaking at the time was kind of going through this renaissance, and it changed a lot from being the kind of staid, old-school presentation of just verite document, you know, and people, like, Ricky and Annie were reinventing the form and bringing this kind of rock and roll sensibility to it, mm. um, which included music and yeah. uh, and and stylization. Like you know, um, whoops, you know Rachel Grady, right? Yeah, and those guys. She's equal, she's another one. Who, right, like, they just have their indelible vision on all their projects. Right. It just looks like their stuff and their treatments and their cinematography and. Ricky and Annie and a lot of people I work with are doing this. And especially at this time, they were kind of being celebrated for doing this. And uh, I think that was attractive to a lot of people. And they'd heard my music. And I'm not a tra- I don't come from that traditional scoring background. So I was kind of doing stuff, inventing yeah, stuff along went, the way in right. almost like a punk rock kind of way, approach to it. And, you know, my game has changed a lot. And I feel a lot more firmly planted in the tradition and I do a lot of classical kind of 
right. chamber music now, but it at the time, you know, this is what I was doing, kind of bringing the same things I was discovering while recording my records into this and using the Some computer. of the sonic palette that you yeah. were experimenting with in your solo records. Exactly. Were coming into the... Totally. Especially early on. Right. A lot, very heavy. Yeah. And uh, synthesizers and loops and stuff. Right. Ambience. So um, so when I got the chance to start getting some call and I met people on that film and I learned, I've learned along the way that if you can be friends with people, it's helpful and it's, it's just how I try to be anyway. Mm-hmm. But so I became friends with some people like the mixers and the people, the sound guys or women and sound designers. And they were feeding me to other projects. And I think it's called networking. It is. <laughs> but I wasn't even really networking. I was just kind of just, I just tried to show up with as much positivity yeah. as I could. And then I was really so hungry. I was taking commercials. I was taking industrial gigs. I was almost anything yeah. I could get my hands on. I was so hungry to actually make a living doing this. And I was less discerning probably than some composers who come out of a, like a, a conservatory background right. might be, or people who have a fully formed vision from the beginning and know exactly what they want to do. And right. I want to sound like this and this is what I'm known for. I have this broad palette and a broad approach and for better, or for worse. And uh, well, technology uh, allows you to do that too. At that time, you know, with things yeah. changing, where you can create the whole palette. And I on just your was own. so I just went for it. I just was wor- I've been working really hard for a long time. So that happened, and then um, the next kind of game changing thing that happened was I got this t- um, steady gig on a television show called The First Forty Eight, which I've done for eleven years in two hundred and seventy five episodes, which was. Not incredibly onerous, but steady, That's and great. and uh, opened other doors. And I met a ton of people through that. And also, how to write for that milieu, and it was and how to crank stuff out episodically too. Yeah, I'm sure it just exactly. Keeps you working and it, and really flowing. Dive into the depths of dark music, right? <laughs> you know, like there, it's always just a laugh because they they say, "Can you make something really dark?" Yeah, <laughs> dark. All right. You're like, what's more That's minor where than I go. this key? Yeah. I can trust me. I, there's some. I made a few cues. I think there was one with like one's called gruesome discovery and one's called yeah. the body or something. Yeah. <laughs> like that show is very very heavy, and if you give me the keys to that car, yeah. you're you're not gonna get it back <laughs> in one piece. So that was that was a great experience too. I think where I'm at now is just trying to bring as much vision like thoughtfulness to every note of every thing I'm doing every project just taking on things that I can really learn new things and stretch new ideas and also that are really thoughtful um and and intended works as opposed to just taking anything well that's well that reminds me of one of the recent projects you did is one October sure Rachel Schumann shout out to Rachel Schumann shout out to Rachel and um, you did a live performance of the score, so that's that's completely orchestral. I would say. I'm not completely. There's actually there's electronic stuff, but in the score itself, is it more orchestral? And then when you do it live, is there more? There are more other elements. There, uh, there were it was minimal, but I mean, I would almost call it part of the score. You know, part of the the chamber mm-hmm. orchestra that we did. But what the original um, method on that was, it was all cello. Yeah. It was one instrument. Egger. It was Dave Egger. Egger. Yeah. Fantastic, just beautiful, 
person and one of the great musicians I've worked with. And we have a great rapport. So he was interpreting a lot of my sketches. I was writing out the pieces and then we recorded stuff and I was- You were orchestralizing him, kind of, tracking him. I mean, I was. Yeah. I mean, I had the song, I had the pieces written mm -hmm. and then we recorded those and then he adds a lot of color just in everything he does just because he's such a, such a pathic and like open vessel. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. he just brings light and color and he's genius. Um, so that came out really well and there were a couple pieces that had drums, guitar, had Peter Lalish on that and Jeff Taylor and Elizabeth Zeman played a little of the keyboard with me. It was more complimentary as opposed to driving it and but it's clear it sounds like a chamber piece, mm -hmm. you know, chamber score. At Rachel's direction, she had a very strong vision for that. And after we the film was finished and came out, we both were thinking about how we could present this in a cool way because it was a, it was a step forward for me as a writer and I think for her this was you know it took her eight years to make the film so right. she had a lot invested in it so I transcribed and reorchestrated the whole thing for bass quintet and plus uh, keyboards guitar yeah and plus keyboard and guitar and um, and we brought it we did it first at the Rubin Museum mm -hmm. um, played live to the film which is incredibly challenging and yeah. scary because <laughs> if you miss your entry point into a scene it's like a runaway train you can't yeah. stop the film and say wait right. wait, wait you know right uh so it took a lot of work and it was it was enthralling and challenging and just it worked so incredibly well thank you beautiful thanks yeah. so much it's a beautiful film so it's it helps and i these incredible musicians so and i'm conducting which is something that i'm not amazing at but learning now okay. more and more yeah and in loving it it's really yeah. fun i mean i kind of did it along the way but now it's i have to do it and it's when you when you have to do it you there's certain things you learn and then so we did it and then we took that up to upstate where near where you're from mm -hmm. garrison and did it there and um i was actually blessed to be flown out to um phoenix to mm -hmm. to conduct the Phoenix Chamber Music Society, um, oh, wow. incredible! Like doing the score, doing set fifteen minutes of the film oh, as wow. part of a program to picture, to picture with with musicians I hadn't met before, wow. which are which were really heavy musicians, which was very frightening. Yeah, <laughs> and another challenging, you know, learning experience of yeah. how to conduct. You know, the, one of the the first violin was the is the head of the violin department at um, Eastman. <laughs> you know, he's like 70 so years old. So you're like, hi, guys. The piano player is this German guy who's it's just, but you know. You, it's, all, it's all down on the score, right? It's got to be on, you know, It's that, all on paper. And that's a leap of faith. Yeah. You know, it always amazes me when that comes together. And, right. and, and also that they're, they're beautiful musicians who care about the music, and they're on your side. Yeah, they're on your side. They want it to work. They want but it to work. You have the added challenge of it having to be work with the film at the time. Exactly. It's not and like a, like there's a little bit of that when you're in a band and you just hire people to read your totally. read your charts and maybe they haven't even met each other, which I love when right. you show up on a if on a they stage. bring the open yeah. part to it. But to add that to and then we're gonna play to a film. How about when, how about when you do that with a band and you get like the bass player 
who could give two craps. Oh, I've had that there. once or twice. I hate that. Uh, I, mean, I never call them again. It's, nothing it's the worse. worst. It's the worst. Yeah. You know, oh. so I was afraid that that, who knows, you know, that, yeah. that could happen, but there, it wasn't that. Not a bass player, for the record. All my bass players are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, it was a bit, I did that once. I've had it with another like, person who It's an awful will feeling. Not be named. Yeah. But anyway. So we d- these people brought a lot of, a lot of generous spirit to it and it just the thing elevated and the, uh, what was great about that performance so we're in Phoenix which is incredibly conservative. Mm-hmm. It was actually in Scottsdale which is even more conservative I think. So the film is an exploration of the last uh moment of Obama's presidency right before the election. The be- of, the beginning of his presidency. Sorry, the beginning, yes. that's yeah. right. It While was the election of Obama, right, and he was running. And so you're in Arizona, which is not known to be a liberal bastion. Not at all, the opposite. And I hadn't thought about it. In fact, when I got there, my friend Noku, who's, um, who brought me there, who was the, the curator of the program, we were, we were rehearsing and running it, and it's this weird place, really cool chamber theater. Um, it's affiliated with Arizona State. And I said, are there going to be 10 people here or what? Mm-hmm. And she said, honestly, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it was kind of the middle Nobody. of the holiday season. Uh-huh. And I'm in this audience, and it struck me that this was not, these were not my people. <laughs> this is not political people who are no, there for, the, some were, for Obama. But there were a lot that weren't. And when Obama comes on screen for, or his image on the film, there was a notable groan. Oh, seriously? Yeah. And, wow. Yeah, and people were not into it. And there's even, there's a transgender right. woman in it. And it's pretty heavy. And I I spoke about it. I introduced the film and spoke about it afterwards. And I was, I think it reached them, but it was definitely interesting it's to be. It's a great opportunity, though, I never, to do something like that. I never encounter those people. Yeah. You know, I don't. And, I mean, if you want to get deep about it, like, there was, we had a human moment. And there's. Like we were all in the room together and right. as humans, and we were able to share this one thing, the music, and transcend our differences. And it, I just wish that that civility existed when you know you're dealing with these heavy subjects. But it's we so, need moments like that. Like we do constantly, where like a human being is in front of you, and not just some concept, or or you're not just behind a keyboard writing nasty stuff on. It's social media the, or some the crap. anonymity of it yeah. is too easy it, it, yeah. it lends itself to screeds and hate hate speech exactly you know? it's too it's lazy it is lazy it's a great way of putting it well we're about to have the midterms and you're not gonna well, <laughs> this isn't gonna come out until it's done so if you're listening to this midterms already happened what do you think happened at the midterms <laughs> I have no idea <laughs> I really have no idea yeah. I uh, I've, I'm trying to be an optimistic person, and I've felt all along like we're going to rise up and take this place yeah, back. Yeah. And our people are not going to stand for this. But now I'm not so sure. Yeah. And I'm not so sure of 2020 either. Yeah. But what my mind's really on is what is this country going to be? Right. In 2020. It's, if we, if the, mid, the midterms was one thing. Right. But if we don't take Congress and we lose the election yeah. in 2020 as well. I say we. We, <laughs> I know. We. Yeah. Um, what does that mean I know to you... be in this country? What does this country mean? And like, where do we go from there? Yeah, I mean, we have kids. You have kids. It's like you want your children to be in a positive, safe, happy place and belong to a system that nurtures them and the world. That's, you know, I think. That's... But when the when the hate mm-hmm. is what's driving and and owning 
I've always been believing that truth, the light will shine through, you know, as Martin Luther King always says, mm-hmm. the arc of justice um, is long. But it, I, maybe there'll be a change, but it's so it's like dark ages. It when, is. We you have, know, we're, when, we've gone well, really far. Hate and ignorance. Yeah. Owns the show. Yeah. It's it's um, numbing and destabilizing and and paralyzing. Yeah, everyone's a little addled. People are not functioning with their full capacities well, we on either all, side because we're just we're in crisis. There were a lot more people in the street early on. You know, people are at the airports. Yeah. you know, helping like supporting in, uh, immigrants, and now we're like beaten down. Well, one of the things I like about you, Paul, is you're not afraid to like um, get pissed off about stuff <laughs> and go dark. So here's a little fun right. game. If you saw <laughs> one of these fucking clowns that's in power in the street or at a restaurant or somewhere where you let's say for some reason you're at a dinner party and insert asshole here Paul Ryan Donald Trump whoever someone shows up because they're friends of a friend right what would you say to them if you could I mean honestly I would completely fail (laughs) (laughs) I always I would I would be you know I would be clumsy with my words probably or just not not witty or direct enough and then think about it for the rest of my life afterwards you know i know but well, here's in a, a perfect you know i i would just say can we lessen the rhetoric can we take the volume down and can we just try to find common ground is it every like is it worth your pocketbook mm-hmm. is it worth your power your 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 to own everything mm-hmm. do you need to have absolute control do you have to own the entire Supreme Court and all the federal right. seats. Do you have to have no? I mean, are you benefiting by letting industry take over the environment? Right. Like we all share these things. Right. Is it, who's winning here? Are you winning just because your interests are being served and your political and your 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 moral, you know, viewpoint on things is being served more than the left? So right. are you winning? Is right. it better for the world? You know, can. The problem is that powers what's driving most of these people. Right. It's not like ethics. It's not any real moral conviction. No, it's kind of a drug shot of power. Yeah, yeah, it's, for its you own see sake. Because you see the, the behavior of these people. Right. They're, they're not. They're not a holy. So it's a joke. Anyway, and I, then one last question: Who's if we want to be optimistic? Who would be a nice president to have in twenty twenty? I don't know. I mean, I I I used to serve Bernie Sanders coffee every morning. Oh, really? <laughs> he actually taught, co- he like guest taught one of my classes in nice. college. Like I knew him. I voted for him for mayor. Yeah. Of Burlington, so I am a Bernie, an unapologetic Bernie supporter, and yeah, I have a lot of liberal friends who call him out for certain things, like his stance on guns and right. Um, I'm a I know who he is. Yeah. At his core, and he is the real deal. So I, yeah, I don't know if he's someone who could win or will right. win, even run again or whatever. Um, his progressive platform is kind of where my heart leads. Yeah. Um, that said, I, I mean, realistically, I couldn't tell. You, I, have, I have not the slightest. Clue. I, my gut tells me someone like Joe Biden will come in and like just be in the middle enough to mm-hmm. have a little standing. That makes sense. You know, a little like, like. Every man enough to yeah, be. Yeah, he's avuncular. Yeah. He has the experience. He's not. He's centrist. Yeah. He's likable. He he could come in and like, 
unify the left to the point where there's just not there's not enough people to be angry at him. That's you interesting. Know? That's interesting. And he'd probably, I mean, maybe he, and if that, I would make that compromise a hundred times out of a hundred times, you know? I see. He might not be everything I want progressively. Well, but, that's one of those things that the left needs to learn how to do. Well, I mean, they do it, right? <laughs> they, they do it. They can go all Within in Within reason. On, I'm at the point now where I'm just like full-on socialist, just ready to just well, go full socialist, but it's yeah. not always very productive. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to just ask you, um, do you have, what's, what are the next projects you're working on? What's, what's happening next for Paul Brill? Well, I just I had a podcast, hey, podcast, podcast. Yeah. theme of, that I did for a podcast that launched today. Oh, for, cool. For NPR. Oh, you did the theme for it. I did a theme oh, for nice. a brand new, I think it's the first NPR, distri- like it's owned and distributed by NPR, like it's their own baby hmm. through Michigan Radio called Believed okay. uh, about the Larry Nassar, um, the doctor who the guy who abused was, all the yeah. gymnasts. And um, more than just his personal story, it's about how predators slip through and, and get away with it for so long. Hmm. And uh, that's that. So that was really fun and a challenge that I hadn't done before, like just like this immediate task at hand and then uh going back to (laughs) it sounds like my son i think there's a raccoon i think that's my son lucas playing drums oh nice (laughs) he's just going in there cool but um so i'll wrap it up but um i mentioned tony gerber earlier who did that movie full battle rattle which was one of my first and he's doing a nat geo nature film about wolves in the arctic circle yeah, that I'm gonna do, which is so exciting for me. I never get to do those types of projects, and there's no dialogue, obviously, and not a lot. I don't even think there's. I don't know if there's narration or not. Wow. But so there's gonna be big physical vistas, and hopefully the music will mm. have that kind of landscape as well. And that's gonna be challenging and exciting. So that's immediate, and then I have a bunch of other stuff that's kind of ongoing, like some series and some Netflix stuff that's coming up. Great. Yeah, it's- very cool stuff. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks so much, Pierre. It's, uh, I love your music, and we're good friends, so this is a real joy. Thanks, man. It's a treat to talk to you. Right on. All right. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Paul Brill on Pierre Pressure, Pressure Podcast. Please go to iTunes and subscribe to Pierre Pressure, Pressure Podcast. Pressure. It helps me a lot if people subscribe. And thank you for listening to this episode and listen to all the other good episodes out there. There's a bunch of other great interviews previous and other great ones coming up. You can go to my website, pierredugayon.com, to find out more about what I'm doing musically. I have an upcoming album coming out, which I just finished mixing. It's called Bad Reputation, American Vacation. I record the songs of all my favorite musicians that are American in French. So I've been translating all the songs of my favorite American musicians into French. That album will be coming out soon. I'm looking for distribution. If you have any ideas, feel free to contact me. I'm translating the songs of The Pixies, Violent Femmes, Bob Dylan, Fugazi, Minutemen, Camper Van Beethoven, Meat Puppets, Vic Chestnut, and Justin Bieber, just for good measure. So that's Bad Reputation American Vacation coming out soon. Thank you for listening to Pierre Pressure Podcast. Fight the pressure. pressure.